I want to think with you today about just this one verse. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I want to think about this commandment of Jesus in light of the concern all of us have today for living in a proper relationship with the God of all nations and the government of the nation we have. And I want to think about that from both sides of that particular statement. I want to look at what it really means to give both God and government their due. The plain assertion of Jesus here is that something is due to the government. We actually owe something to government. Now, exactly what that is or how much that is is regularly debated in households, in churches, in lots of forums all of the time. People of good Christian conscience differ as to the role of government or the extent of government or the target of the government's taxation or the appropriate reach of government into issues like health care, for example, or marital rights or so many other uh, important spheres of our daily lives. But if you're a student in the Bible, if you're a person that has looked at history carefully, if you understand the way of Jesus at all, then you know that there are some propositions regardless of our own personal party politics, upon which we as followers of Jesus are compelled to agree. First of all, the Bible teaches we are to give government our respect. Now, this is difficult at times. In fact, if it were not difficult, I doubt it would need to be a commandment. Government would be so much more worthy of respect, I think some of us feel, if we were in charge. It's going to be better when we're king or when we're queen one day or when our people are in power or when whatever happens. We often find ourselves struggling with whatever administration we may happen to have with respecting that administration. But here's what the scriptures teach us nonetheless. And, And remember that these words I'm about to quote to you were not written by somebody whose people were in power at the time. They were not written by um, somebody to whom everything was from coming from the government was working nicely in his life. In fact, this was written by somebody who was actually being persecuted by the people who had the reins of authority in the popular culture. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 13. The authorities that exist have been established by God. In other words, they are part of his sovereign plan. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority, says Paul, is rebelling against what God has instituted. For he, meaning whoever is in authority, and Paul here was literally talking about Caesar, um, he is God's servant to do you good. In other words, in spite of his flaws, his... his, his um, Sin, Um, Caesar is someone through whom God still is trying to work good in the land. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. If you owe taxes, says Paul, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. In other words... Christians, amongst all of the citizens of a society, 
are the, are the people who, by God's word, are most likely to live with a bias toward giving respect to the authorities of the land. They, they will not be amongst those who just disregard authority, but will be ones who uh, respect authority and not lightly turn against them. Alongside of this call to respect, God also commands us to give government our prayers. This is a recurrent theme in the scriptures. Again, the Apostle Paul says, pray for those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Even where somebody in power seems the enemy of what we consider good. And there comes a time, I suppose, in the life of any follower of Jesus when somebody in power seems to us to be a heinous enemy of what we consider to be the good. And yet even then, Jesus commands us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. In other words, one of the defining marks that you are truly children of your Father in heaven is that you'll be somebody who prays for people with whom we even disagree. Now the call here, I think, is to much more than a grudging acknowledgement of government in our prayers. It is to something much more than praying through clenched teeth about our government. As Christians, we are to have a compassionate heart for those in government. We are to have a heart that is reflective of the heart of Jesus, who you will remember, even when hanging upon the cross, a cross upon which he was pinned by the government, religious and civil of his time, prayed, For those in power, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. There is reason, I think, for some sympathy toward the Caesars of our time. It's, I know, popular often this time of year, especially in churches, to to think back to the founding uh, leaders of this country, to reflect upon the purity of their heart, the clarity of their mind, and, and extol, oh, if only we had leaders like those again. We neglect to remember sometimes how much simpler life was in these United States when this whole adventure began. You know, how, how uh, essentially one race, <laughs> one, one religion dominated everything, and, and, it, and Protestant at that. And yet today, what our leaders are facing is a, is a nation so dramatically more complicated, uh, pluralistic, diverse, dynamic in the pace of change, influenced by so many circumstances even beyond our shores in a way that would have been incomprehensible to the leaders who began this country. Those who serve us in government today are are struggling, I think most of them, quite earnestly with these issues. I, I remember my dad, of course, is in politics. He's a state senator. I've watched him all through my life as he and outside the public eye, spending long hours late at night pouring through documents, working on solutions, trying to find a better way. And I I know there are scoundrels out there too, but I honestly believe that as I've got spent more time with, with people in government, I know many of these people are earnestly trying to do their best. Uh, even when we don't agree with them, their health, their families are under unbelievable duress uh, today. And so as followers of God, as followers of the one who took such amazing pains 
to identify with our needs, right? To put himself in our shoes, to incarnate himself in our reality. As followers of that God, let's also do what we can to try and put ourselves in the shoes of those who govern and to pray for God's grace and God's wisdom to be poured out upon them. If we give in to the fashion of demonizing people in government today, only demons will run for office. Okay? We must not be amongst those who give in to that fashion. So what should we give to Caesar? First, give those in government some respect. God commands that. Secondly, give those in authority some prayerful empathy. They need it. They need supernatural wisdom and grace like never before. Finally, give government some credit. It has become popular today not just to berate individual politicians, but to bash the entire institution of government altogether. And I understand why we do this. We have watched bureaucracies balloon out of control. We have seen waste become wanton. We have witnessed ill-advised conflicts, heinous cronyism, I'm so tired of living now in a state where we just can't keep our governors out of jail. We, we struggle with this, right? We're not the only state that does. We have seen government gridlock in a way that just tests your hope for the future. Uh, but, but it is important in spite of all of those realities that we keep our perspective. For all of its ills, the particular form and exercise of government in these United States still does more to support life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness than any other on earth. We still enjoy a rule of law. We still enjoy a, a level of education and mobility and opportunity that is the envy of the world, even if we're going to have to fight hard to keep it. We are one of the only civilizations in the history of planet Earth whose government has never yielded to military control and which has observed an orderly succession of power every time. I mean, this is miraculously unusual in the span of human history. The system of government to which our great God led our founders provides a system of checks and balances which allow for remarkable self-correction over time. It's almost like the weather, you know, here in Chicago. If you don't like the weather, wait a while. It will change. If you don't like what's going on in government, wait a while. It can still change. It has a capacity for change because of the genius of the system God led our founders to devise. While cherishing free enterprise, it has not been the marketplace alone that has produced the commonwealth we Americans enjoy. And if gratitude is a virtue that Christians are meant to possess, how many of you think gratitude is a virtue Christians are meant to possess? If that is true, then I think, maybe especially this year, but at all times, alongside of respecting and praying for Caesar you and I will also be people who give to our government at least some credit for the good that it has advanced. 
these are the things we are to give to Caesar. Alongside of these things, it is also essential that we remain very clear about giving to God his proper due to. In fact, I would go so far as to say that understanding the proper place of God in relationship to human government has been one of the most important ingredients in the relative success of the American experiment thus far. I was a new believer when I entered Yale University. I was a political science major. I read deeply in the documents of our founding, of our founding and, and much of our history along the way, and I have been often impressed at the genius of the relationship between God and government defined in this nation's life, especially at the start. As most of us are aware, the majority of our nation's founders were very clear on two truths concerning the proper relationship between government and God. First, they understood that government should not blend with religion. And let me tell you what I mean by that, that it should not blend with religion. The founders of our nation had come uniformly from countries where Christianity, where the church of Jesus, and a particular denomination in many cases, had been officially established as the state religion. Governmental leadership and church leadership had blended into one. People who had an office in the church also had an office in the state house, in the palace, and it sounded like a magnificent idea at the beginning. It really seemed to be the right thing. Caesar and God are getting married. How wonderful is that? What a grand party it's going to be when government and God are working together. But then a lot of what God brought into the marriage got moved into the basement or out of the house altogether. That happens in marriages sometimes. One party gets, has their stuff moved out. But then the political agenda began to overcome the spiritual one in these governments. Religion was increasingly being used to manipulate people into particular political ends, or politics was being used to coerce people into certain religious observances or alignments, and, and often payments. It was a very bad marriage. In every country where it was tried, it was a very bad marriage. And the children born to that particular marriage, when they fled this, uh, that, that marriage to this nation, resolved themselves never again. Were there things that, that your parents did? That when you started your marriage, you said, oh, never again. We're going to do that differently in this household. And so it was that vowing it would not happen here, our founders enshrined the conviction in what we call the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to our Constitution. I'm really sorry if this feels like a civics lesson today, but I think you'll see why this is important in just a moment. The Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to our Constitution reads as follows. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. There should not be a blend, a formal blend of the church and the state. And then it goes on to say, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The establishment clause says government should never blend with religion. 
But the following clause outlines the balancing conviction. Government should never ban religion. It should never prohibit the free exercise of religion. Now, in our day, just as the Establishment Clause has been um, disfigured, reinterpreted, so also has this second clause been misunderstood. Increasingly, people have believed that free exercise of religion means the freedom to do what you want to do religiously in the privacy of your home or your church. But, as Robbie George, a Princeton University historian, very schooled in these things, uh, reminds us, religious liberty, as the founders conceived it, was not merely the freedom to worship or the freedom to say prayers in private or at the dinner table or at one's bedside or even to gather in one's homes for prayer meetings or Bible studies with others. Religious freedom, as the founders understood it, was much, much more than that. It included the freedom to take our faith out into the public square and to proclaim there the great moral principles that we as people of conscience believe are essential to justice and the common good of the whole of society. Now, it has been indisputably documented, and I've tried to document it for you in past Nation Under God weekends. Um, Maybe of you have read even more extensively than, than I have in this subject, but I think it has been indisputably documented that many of the founders believed that the values of the Judeo-Christian tradition were indispensable to the health and survival of the American experiment. Um, In fact, any republic that was going to give this much freedom to people needed to have moral underpinnings in order for it to survive. John Adams, our second president, a signer of the Great Declaration, will be remembering on the 4th of July, declared, we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other kind of people. You get the message here, right? If we lose our morals and our religious base, our our source of an understanding of virtue and personal responsibility and the rest, we're sunk. We're sunk as a nation because we've given such liberty to its people. And it will become chaos. It will unravel if we lose that uh, vision, that that foundational set of values. Jedediah Morse, an early statesman and an educator, wrote these words. To the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican form of government and all blessing which flows from them must fall with them. Our leaders felt passionately about the importance of religious expression because in that expression would be underlined and embedded into the heart and character and conscience of people those deep truths about the nature of life which would lead us to live well with one another. As passionately as these leaders felt about their faith, however, they were very careful to claim no special privileges for Christianity. 
no special privileges. Freedom of religion, as the founders understood it, had to include the freedom to pursue a faith other than the Bible describes or to disbelieve in a supreme deity altogether. The big idea that got defined in the Constitution is that this was going to be a country where people were free to pursue whatever religion they chose or no religion at all without fear of political reprisal. America would be this amazing open marketplace where the best ideas, whether religious or not, could be heard and could compete for the allegiance of the citizenry in open discussion. It would be a nation where freedom of religious conscience would be unusually respected. Here is where I am concerned that we are in jeopardy today of giving too much to Caesar and not enough to God. It's precisely at this particular point of the open marketplace of ideas that I think we're in danger of giving too much to Caesar and taking away that which is rightly God's and that of his people. When government is now incorrectly interpreting the establishment clause of our Constitution, it's not simply preventing institutional blending, because that is what it was about. Trust me, that's exactly what it was about. Don't institutionally blend church and state. When the establishment clause is now being interpreted as actually banning religious language or expressions from public places, people of faith need to speak out against government respectfully but firmly, we need to speak out against government. When moral precepts that are as foundational and universally recognized as the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, okay? Pretty basic, pretty essential to the survival of any society's life. When that kind of basic, universally recognized moral code is now being prohibited from public display, Caesar's taking too much. He's taking too much. When customs as benign as acknowledging the grace by which all of us live are now being stricken from school graduations because some individual citizen finds those words offensive, it is time for the religious majority to politely say, please feel free not to pray when we're praying. But please do not contravene our religious liberty. When government is now attempting to force religious institutions to pay for health services or validate lifestyles that violate their moral conscience, that which they take from their religion, people of faith need to object. Caesar, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. In his brilliant biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the heroic German pastor who stood up against Hitler. Eric Metaxas describes what one German sociologist called a spiral of silence. In other words, as the cultural movements within Germany developed, incrementally moving toward what would become the outrages of the Third Reich, it became harder and harder to speak out against them. Had the majority of people who had misgivings about the course of their nation stood up early, uh, contends Metaxas, if they had just stood up and said, stop, 
what's going on here isn't right. We need to really rethink what we're doing and where we're heading. If they had just, the majority of those folks had just stood up and voiced their concern in a passionate way, the horror of Germany's moral collapse could have been entirely avoided. But most people, documents Metaxas, including the Christian community, the people you would think would be most inclined to champion the sanctity of life, the freedom of religion, be it for atheists or Jewish people or Christians alike, most of those people remained silent. And the spiral got deeper and it got tighter till it was no longer possible to speak out anymore without being silenced by the government for your dissent completely, forever. Now is our time to speak contends Metaxas, and I would agree. We're not living in a fascist regime. We're, we're, we're not, and Metaxas is, is, underlines this, and I agree with him, we're, we're not living in a, let, let's not demonize our leaders, okay? We're not living in a fascist regi- regime. And if there's a change of leadership at the next go-round, we won't be living in one then probably, either. It hasn't happened yet. There's no Hitler on our immediate horizon. But we are on a serious slide as a nation. When it comes to our understanding of the value of life and the covenants that we make in marriage and the, and the, uh, the ultimate values that drive our spending and our thinking and our being with one another in the world and our religious liberties are imperiled today, there's a serious slide going on. As Christians, we need to stand up. And it seems to me that, first of all, we need to look at the way we are living ourselves. And we need to align that way more with the way of Jesus so that we will have an alternative, truly winsome witness that influences other people. Secondly, we need to use our voice and our vote to advance the values and the policies we believe in. I'm not telling you how to vote. I don't think any party has a corner on the righteousness of God. But when 50% of Christians don't go to the polls, we've got an issue there. We're not using an influence God has given us. Let's use our influence. Thirdly, we need to study the issues and know the facts. We can no longer constantly repeat what we've heard some pundits say. We've got to do our homework. We've got to go to websites. We've got to research the issues, know what we're talking about. And if we don't know what we're talking about, we probably ought to shut up, Metaxas reminds us. Because we're just embarrassing the cause and confusing the discussion. We need to speak the truth in love. And if we can't speak in love, we're probably not speaking the truth. Uh, We need to speak the truth in love and reflect the servant heart of Jesus in all that we do and not confuse that with weakness. Jesus shows us it is the greatest form of power and influence. And we need to remember that the most significant battle of our time is not between Republicans and Democrats. Oh my gosh, that's a tiny battle. The most significant battle of our time is between those who would erase God's name and his voice from the public square and the conscience of man and woman and those who know that such an act is actually contrary to our Constitution and against the desires of God and contrary to the welfare 
of all people, even atheists. Therefore, let's be sure to give government its due. But let us also hold fast to and labor together for those virtues and freedoms that are the even more precious gift of our God to all people. This, I believe, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.